Joe fans, find out what lies beneath. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by the Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freak Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comic books. This episode is going to cover a book that I bought on October 7th, 1986, which was G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, number 55. It's roughly a week after the last book I covered, which was G.I. Joe and the Transformers, number 1. And while I'm not sure if I bought this the week it came out, I'm pretty sure I bought the two books on the same day. Last episode, I talked about riding my bike to the comic store with my friends, but that wouldn't become a habit of ours until we really got into buying G.I. Joe comics the following summer. At this point, it was late summer, early fall, and that means it wasn't too cold to spend most of our weekend days playing outside or riding around, and so I'm pretty sure that my parents gave me two bucks and decided I could take those two bucks and go to the comic shop. What I do know, however, is that I bought it because the cover, which is a Mike Zek cover, shows the heads of Cobra Commander, Destro, and Snake Eyes, three of the most famous disguised characters in the comic, taking off their masks, with a title that says, Unmaskings. And I'm pretty sure that I saw it sitting on the new comic shelf and said, I'm going to buy Unmaskings. I own this comic in a single issue, although my copy is not the original copy I bought in 1986. That copy, which had a rolled spine and was in whipped-to-death condition, was either given away, thrown away, or sold years ago. So I bought it again a few years ago that, so that I could get it signed by Larry Hama and later Mike Zek. I will try to remember to post a scan of that signed cover to the show notes. I'm reading this, however, out of Classic G.I. Joe, Volume No. 6, which was the trade paperback published by IDW, collecting roughly issues 50 through 60 or 51 through 60 of the series. Marvel had started to collect this series in the early 2000s, but I don't think they got very far with their trades before they lost the license from Habro and IDW took things over. IDW is still publishing the series. In fact, Larry Hama is writing the continuation of the classic Marvel series, and you can still find these trades, of which there are about 12 or 13 collecting the original Marvel run. Volumes 6 and 7 are what comprises the issues I'm going to be looking at for this podcast series, because the major parts of my comics collecting comes between issues 59 and 66. Now, I didn't get issues 56, 57, or 58 although I would buy them later on by plucking them out of back issue bins, and that's because at this time my trips to the comic store were still pretty infrequent. But that aside, this was one of those random trips, and, well, do you blame me for wanting this comic book? You've got three characters on the cover whose faces you have never seen, and this isn't like, say, He-Man, where all the characters are monsters or other fantasy types of creatures. This is more like Star Wars, in a way, where you know that people are underneath some of those masks. 
and Cobra Commando and Destro are, in a way, a lot like Darth Vader. They were the cool bad guys who you didn't know that much about, aside from what was on their file cards and if you had the figures. But you knew, well, enough. Man, if you had those figures, they were the centerpiece to whatever bad guy plan was going on. Plus, Snake Eyes was probably the most well-known of the Joes and was one of the few who got a second version of his action figure early on. He had that incredibly mysterious history, one that I would find as I was collecting G.I. Joe comics that year, and he was connected to Storm Shadow, who was the Cobra Ninja. So you have masked villains and ninjas. I mean, what more could a kid want? For the record, I never had a Destro figure. I had the second version of Snake Eyes, which is the version that you got with the uh, that's on the cover here with that sort of Geordi LaForge type of mask. Although I lost the Timber the Wolf figure that came with him uh, probably almost immediately after getting the figure. I would get the third version, had knives on his chest or something later on. Also at the time I had a Cobra Commander figure, but it was a Cobra Commander that was hooded, which I got through the mail-away catalog you'd get with some of the vehicles. And I remember that figure had like... I, I My version of that figure had the bright teal peg from part of the, part of the Cobra water moccasin stuck in one of the holes in his feet because I probably took him off the thing or was jammed in there or whatever. Uh, it's happened all the time, by the way, and, and I'm pretty sure that I could have grabbed a pair of like needle nose pliers and pried the thing out of his foot, but I don't think I was that industrious at nine years old. Plus, I used to snap the thumbs off my G.I. Joe figures all the time, too. I mean, none of them... None of them were toys I was ever going to be able to sell or anything because of the way that they were just played with and beaten to death. Anyway, I can't remember if the Armored Cobra Commander figure was out yet, and even if it was, I'm pretty sure I didn't have it. Uh, I I did get it. I I also got the classic Cobra Commander, the masked one, uh, at some point from a friend, uh, which is... The hood is what he's taking off on the cover, but he's wearing the mask throughout the issue. And the issue opens with Cobra Commander and Destro trapped underground near an escape tunnel, something that is the result of Cobra's assault in the pit, which is the Joe's underground headquarters on Staten Island. That happened in issue 53, which I always remember not for its plot, but because that was the month of the special 25th anniversary covers, so the covers of Snake Eyes holding an Uzi surrounded by a border of Marvel heroes. It's a great issue, too, because it's the continuation of a long-running storyline that Larry Hama had put together, which is more or less wrapping up within the next few issues with some threads continuing on after that. But there were no Autobots or Decepticons in this story, which is written by Larry Hama with pencils by Rod Wingham, inks by Andy Mashinsky, colors by George Russo, letters by Joe Rosen, Bob Harris is your editor, Jim Shooter still is the editor-in-chief. So instead of Autobots and Decepticons, we've got Cobra Commander and Destro fighting one of those vehicles that's literally a giant drill that's used to dig tunnels, and uh, they, they get in. Meanwhile, what's above what's left of the pit in Fort Wadsworth, Grunt, a.k.a. Mr. Robert Graves, is officially given his discharge papers and is headed to Georgia Tech University to study engineering. Clutch salutes his friend as he leaves, and then we head to Sierra Gordo as in the Cobra Terror Drum, where the Baroness and Dr. Mindbender are probing Flint, whom they captured last issue. Back at the pit, Destro operates the tunnel digger and gets them out of there, bringing them to the surface in a mall. They head into Eddie's fashions, where Destro assumes that Cobra has basically given up on them, and that's true because the bodies aren't even cold and Serpentor has basically taken over and is unveiling his plans for a huge Cobra skyscraper in New York. And the two of them take their masks off and put on fake beards and mustaches, as well as street clothes. 
Back in Sierra Gordo, Leatherneck, Lowlight, Beachhead, and Stalker lead a team of local freedom fighters against Tomax Zaymart and the Crimson Guard, while Dr. Mindbender comes to the realization that the man they have captured and thought was Flint isn't Flint at all. It's Snake Eyes, wearing a mask, and they both recoil in horror at his disfigured face. The Joes continue to take out various Cobra troops, and this leads to the Baroness and Dr. Mindbender sealing up the terror drone to use it as a fortress. Meanwhile, Cobra Commander and Destro drive down the highway in a Corvette and get pulled over by a state trooper, but Cobra Commander actually has his driver's license, his real, actual driver's license, and talks his way out of the ticket, but not before the state trooper tells him that he looks like some kid named Billy who had been in a really nasty car wreck a little over a year ago and is now in a coma. In Sierra Gordo, Snake Eyes is rescued and the Joes are making their way out of the terror drone when Stalker is shot. Not wanting to leave a man behind, Snake Eyes tells the other Joes to call for an evac and get Stalker to safety. Then, holding two machine guns, Snake Eyes takes on just about everyone, forcing the Cobra troops to unload a ton of ordnance in the area. It's unclear if Snake Eyes is alive or dead or free or captured, and since I won't be covering issue 56 for this series, I can tell you that page 1 of issue 56 shows Snake Eyes on a stretcher that's being held by Cobra troopers while the Baroness barks orders. But the Joes are safe. Back in the States, Cobra Commander is at the kid Billy's hospital bed. Billy is his son. The doctor tells him that his son is not brain dead and that he's in a lot better shape than he could have been, with skin grafts restoring his appearance as well and as having the chance to get prosthetic limbs after he wakes up. Cobra Commander and Destro have this exchange. Cobra Commander, sa Commander says, I know it's kind of late, but I'm going to stand by you, Billy, even though I've been a lousy father all this time. And... Destro says, you imprisoned him, outlawed him, and even subjected him to Dr. Venom's brainwave scanner. You drove him into a nightmare existence. Cobra Commander says, don't you think I know that? True villainy lies not in the commission of evil, but in the denial of it. I should have loved him better. How can he ever forgive me? Destro says, you can't change the past. Let it go. Do something about the future. And Destro leaves. I love this issue. I loved this issue when I was a kid, and I love it now. I'm going to start with the artwork and then get into how the book is written. It's because I surprisingly really like the art, which is not something I'm always going to say about a G.I. Joe comic. The cover is great. The covers for just about all the issues of G.I. Joe that I read, which are all drawn by Mike Zeck, were always great. But when Mike Zeck, or early on in the series, Michael Golden, was doing the covers and they weren't on the interior art, it was usually a letdown. Especially because it was G.I. Joe, and the artist was someone whose book on the work, work on the book was, well, solid at best. I mean, I have nothing against Herb Trimpey or Mike Vosberg or Frank Springer, but G.I. Joe never really had a Walt Simonson and Tom Palmer team like Star Wars or a Michael Golden on the art like Micronauts. And its strength really was in its writing. And Wingham's art is, is really good. I mean, on page two, he manages to get some emotion out of Cobra Commander and his mask, just like a good artist does with Vader. Although Cobra Commander is a lot more manic. I also have to kind of crack up that the G.I. Joe logo is on a tunnel boring machine that Destro and Cobra Commander used to get out of the pit. And if you look closely enough at the toy store in the mall, they pop up and you can see that there's a flaming carrot toy. Uh, plus, Wiggum makes the action look good and not ridiculous as it could be because, well, guys like Tomax and Zaymot look ridiculous. As does Dr. Mindbender and Serpentor. But you completely forget that because much like Hama's script, the arc takes this seriously. And speaking of the script, it's a well-paced, fun issue that made me wonder if Hama had any experience writing action television shows prior to this, and he hadn't, which is surprising because he's really good at cutting back and forth between scenes throughout the story. We have two stories going on in this issue, the Sierra Gordo mission, which is the continuation of the story that appeared in issue 54, 
and the Cobra Commander and Destro story that was a continuation of issue 53's story. Hama cuts back and forth from page to page at one point before finally spending a few pages at Sierra Cordell so that the mission can come to its conclusion, and it makes the issue go by really quickly, still having enough substance in the story to make it feel like a full issue. Plus, there are some really good character beats. I actually chuckled a little when Destro said to Cobra Commanders, so that's what you look like. And then at the scene where they're pulled over by the cop because Cobra Commander not only knew how to hotwire a car from a used car dealership because it was something he picked up as a former used car dealer, but he also had his driver's license, like his actual driver's license. I guess it's a good thing that those only have to be renewed every few years because I can't imagine what it would be like if Cobra Commander had to go to the DMV to renew his license. But it's not all fun and laughs, especially when he sees Billy, and I really like that exchange between Cobra Commander and Destro by Billy's hospital bed, because you really do get the sense that all of the sins that Cobra Commander has committed in the past are coming back to haunt him. Plus, you get the sense that he's going to have to solve the problem for himself, because Destro leaves him at the end. And while Destro always was a part of Cobra, I always saw him as sort of a business partner than a crazed Cobra terrorist, and he always was portrayed in the comics as someone who had a sense of morality was twisted, of course, but he essentially was an arms dealer to terrorists, you know, but there was something about him that said that he had his head on the right way as opposed to Cobra Commander, and these last two pages show that. He leaves his former boss and ally, and while we will be seeing him again in a couple of issues, you do get the sense that this relationship has changed. Overall, like I said, I love this comic, and it represents a real turning point in G.I. Joe, although it will be a few more months before we see those results and another G.I. Joe comic. In fact, my next episode is about a comic from Marvel's Distinguished Competition. (laughs) I'm going to take a break, but I did want to go through the letters and ads for the issue because while I read the trade for expediency's sake, I do have the physical comic book. So let's just take a look at the letters, which the letter column was named Postbox The Pit. Alex Newborns writes in about how he loves G.I. Joe Special Missions. A young friend of mine... uh, he said, asked him, why would, did Cobra want Snake Eyes dead before he ever became a G.I. Joe? Raises a couple of questions. He says, doesn't this mean Cobra knows Snake Eyes' real identity? Was Snake Eyes or Storm Shadow involved with Cobra in Vietnam? And just how long has Cobra been around? And they say, uh, and Bob Harris, or, or Bobby Chase probably, because she was the assistant editor, says, your first four questions will be answered with an upcoming issue that will deal with the activities and certain characters and organizations in the Golden Triangle area of Southeast Asia during the Vietnam era. There's no Cobra significance to Snake Eyes' name, Alex. He received his appellation before Cobra existed as such. Nobody told us who the Joe on the corner is supposed to be. Oh, that um, there's a in the in the cover box. It, it looks kind of like a grunt type of thing. It's just, you know, a, a, a generic army guy. David Eng from Sparta, New Jersey complains about how there's so much high-tech stuff and he's using all these character puns. Fred Sheeran of Woodbury, New Jersey writes in about how uh, the digests are coming out. We get a couple of um, a couple letters from people who don't like ninjas. James Pancoast of Lovettville, Virginia writes in and says a friend recently told me about a comic book called the nam he said it's about the joes in vietnam is that true i've also heard of the gi joe universe and transforms gi joe team up when will they be coming out is there a gi joe movie if so when it's coming out 
The Nom will be available in September and has nothing to do with G.I. Joe, James. And that's right, James. But if you're interested in learning about The Nom, you can check out In Country, which is my regular show about the Marvel comic series The Nom, and you can find it on the Two True Freaks Network. And then Bobby goes on to say it's written by Doug Murray, penciled by Mike Golden. It's the real stuff. The G.I. Joe movie will release sometime around the end of March, and the G.I. Joe Transformers team-up will be on the stands in September. And I covered that last episode. Uh, and a couple of people writing in about realism, those sorts of things. But, you know, just kind of a few mundane letters. It doesn't have the the controversy that some of the early Marvel uh, non-comics, for instance, had. Ads, we've got a M&M's ad of Packs of Fun for Everyone showing the animated M&M's characters playing gymnastics. There's, the, there's a laser tag ad that's a comic where one guy is fighting with another guy and beats him. Gum Dinger Adventures and Gumby and Pokey. Free the Cat and Mystery starring Spider-Man from Captain Crunch. Oh, I remember this. The Sog Master had Captain, captured Captain Crunch and the boxes had a different illustration on them and you could win money or something. Um, there's a, a Washington uh, DC store of Another World which I believe was an offshoot of American Comics, which we do have an American Comics ad. Um, This is an early American Comics ad. Uh, But G.I. Joe is... Hot! Dark Knight is... Hot! Superman is... Hot! And Watchmen, number one, limit five each for $2. Marvel's Super March, you can... uh, you can get 1982 pennies apparently for two bucks or something. I don't. I don't get that. There's a hodgepodge ad, classic hodgepodge ad where you can do everything from finish high school by the mail, uh, email, send a get a catalog from Dave's Comics, a bunch of comics, and then get that Atlas Charles Atlas body. There's a Escape from Tanopia. I believe this is a role playing game or a novel. You're on you're on a desolated island somewhere on the mysterious planet of Tanopia. There's danger all around you. Man eating spiders and weird half human crocodiles who hunt you every day. Um, you must escape, but how? That's the ultimate challenge in this exciting new series of books. You are taken on a new fantasy adventure full of terrifying dangers. The only, there's only one escape. Find it from Bantam. Uh, bullpen bulletins. Shooter does the. Um, uh, what would usually be Stan's soapbox, but um, he says that uh, he and Stan appeared on ABC's 2020 a few years, weeks ago, talking about Marvel's 25th anniversary. He says, while we were very pleased with everything with broadcast, we were very disappointed about what was left out, specifically every single mention made of Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and the other great artists who co-created with Stan and many of Marvel's greatest characters. We believe in giving credit where credit is due, and we did, but to no avail. You don't have much control in interview situations like that. First of all, you discuss primarily what the interviewer wants, and second, typically they film several hours of conversation, which they edit down to a few minutes. You have no say over what makes it onto the air and what doesn't. So anyway, we were basically delighted to see Marvel's 25th getting coverage, but we wish we had come out a little differently, and we wanted you to know. Mr. Fantastic is stretching our savings by subscribing now. There's a Yamaha ad, which I always I used to we used to see if you if you collected comics back in the mid '80s, you saw this Yamaha ad. It's a it's black background with a black mo- guy wearing a motorcycle helmet, and in the in the visor of the helmet, you can see the reflection of a keyboard, and the the text says it has two wheels, two sources of power, and can go from zero to one ninety two in just one shift. But instead of riding it, you strap it over your shoulder because this machine is so powerful it can take you places just standing still the DX100 synthesizer anything's possible by Yamaha 
So kind of an interesting way to, to incorporate motorcycles and electronics, which is what Yamaha did. And then on the back, there's a Dungeons & Dragons fantasy role-playing game, Set 5 Immortals Rules. So, And that's ads. Um, I'll be back in a minute just to talk a little more. Well, hey there. This is Huckleberry Ham. And when I'm not busy making movies or TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out? Head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Sounds great, Mr. Hound. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, no problem, failers. Now, if y'all excuse me, I have to run. I'm shooting a movie. It's a western, and if y'all see Quick Draw McGraw, don't tell him. He's still hot at me about the good, the bad, and Huckleberry Hound. And once he gets all El Cabong, he's a pain in the you-know-where. And then there was this one time that he and Baba Louie had a little too much sarsaparilla, and Quickdraw said something to Magilla Gorilla that I won't repeat, you understand? We were shooting Yogi's gang, and things got mighty tense. Boo-Boo, and, and Boo-Boo's a great feller, real sharp, love working with him. Boo-Boo kept it all from Yogi, you understand? But boy, I tell you, TwoTrueFreaks.com. Tell them Huckleberry the sent you. And we're back. So I was prepping this episode. I was thinking about hanging out with friends back then and started diving into the Wikipedia page for 1986 to see what was going on in the world of pop culture because as we're all pretty familiar with it when it comes to nostalgia, the months and the years from a long time ago tend to blur together from time to time. This is around the time when the NLCS starts and I'm planning an actual episode of Pop Culture Affidavit for that so I won't get too much into the Mets here. Except to say that if I wasn't playing G.I. Joes or watching cartoons, I was rooting for the Mets because they were on their way to the World Series. Anything, one thing I did notice on the Wikipedia page about 1986 in television was that on October 9th, which is two days after this comic book came out, the Fox Network launched. This is something I think I sort of noticed back then, or at least I noticed when Channel 5 in New York, which was WNEW for years, became WNYW. That actually happened back in March of 86, but I can't say I noticed right away. I did notice, though, because I remember paying attention to some of the coming up next bumpers that the station used to run during commercial breaks from my cartoons, and it would have most likely been during He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which I think Channel 5 was still running in 86. And if I was watching it, that's where I would have noticed the change in station name. To be honest, while it would start officially in 1986, Fox wouldn't have a true prime timeline lineup until the fall of 87. They would start a Sunday night block of programming in April with two of its earliest hits, 21 Jump Street and Married with Children, and then they would expand to Thursdays in July before having a true launch in the fall. 
The show that actually launched the Fox network was the Joan Rivers show. It was a late-night talk show that she did after leaving her gig as the semi-permanent replacement host for Johnny Carson. And if you've ever seen the documentary Joan Rivers, A Piece of Work, you'll know that as a result of her getting that talk show, Joan pissed off Johnny Carson, who was, well, I don't mean to speak ill of dead celebrities, but from the stories I've heard, Johnny Carson was not somebody you pissed off. And the result was that he not only banned her from the show for the rest of his time on it, but held that grudge against her, I think, until his death. I don't think they ever spoke again. And it wouldn't be until Jimmy Fallon's first night as the host of The Tonight Show that Rivers would come back onto The Tonight Show stage. He'd have her on as a guest at a later date. But she was one of the people who came out and gave his money gave him money because of these supposed bets he made. And a really great moment, too, especially if you know the story behind it, and one of those more endearing moments for Joan in her final days, because if you watch the clip, you, you can tell she's actually pretty touched to be having been invited. But the other show that premiered in 1986 that was on WNYW and was really starting to pick up steam in the fall of 86 was A Current Affair. To this day, I don't think there's been a better three seconds to identify a show. It came sometime on sometime after dinner. I think it was like 7, 7.30. I know my parents didn't watch it because they watched Entertainment Tonight, which was on it around that time of the day, right after, right before primetime. Um, and it was after Jeopardy. Of course, where I live now, Jeopardy's on. Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune like have flipped um, based on where they are in New York. So friends of mine up in New York watch Jeopardy before Wheel, and we watch Wheel before Jeopardy, although I don't watch Wheel very much. Anyway, Current Affair was one of the first shows I think ever exposed me to the whole idea of sleazy television. Monday, Charles and Camilla's naughty phone fantasy, the uncensored world exclusive on the next to Current Affair. Monday at 7 on Fox 5 New York. Uh, I don't watch afternoon talk shows. Uh, I didn't watch them. I don't watch them now, really. Uh, the only, the, and honestly, back then, the only ones that were on were Oprah and Donahue, and they were really not as sleazy. Um, Geraldo would come on in the fall of 87. Springer wouldn't go full Springer until at least the 90s. I think Sally Jesse was around. I mean, I could do a whole pop culture affidavit episode about afternoon talk shows. Maybe I will one day. But back to our current affair. You've got Maury Povich, and this was years before uh, You Are Not the Father and all that. And it was supposed to be a news magazine show, but instead of being, say, 20, 20 or 60 minutes, it was basically like Rupert Murdoch had taken the New York Post and put it on the air for half an hour every night. Now, I honestly don't think I ever really watched the show unless there was something on that interested me. Uh, same with Hard Copy, which I remember being on right before Entertainment Tonight, about 7 o'clock in the early 1990s. I mean, maybe I caught a few episodes of both during the O.J. Simpson era, but for the most part, I only remember the commercials when they would air during cartoons or post-cartoon reruns of different strokes and the facts of life. But there's a, one story I do remember. It involved a group that came to my high school for an assembly. Love All People, which I don't think still exists as a formal organization, came to Sable High School in 1993, bringing a message of, well, loving all people, because that's what they were about. And it was a religious organization, but they kind of like... It wasn't like a prayer in schools type of message, but it was one of those like uh, ways you can subtly be religious at an assembly in high school without actually preaching. Uh, and they did it through music. And their leader was this guy named Prentice, who was kind of a poor man's Al Green. And he was all about this love all people thing. And he'd taken people whose lives were screwed up because of drugs or abuse or whatever and turned them into musicians. They're bad musicians, but they were musicians nonetheless. And the song he kept singing was something on the order of, hey, hey, sha-na-na-na, life goes on. 
And I guess the message was that despite all the crap you go through in life, you can persevere and you should live to see another day because, well, hey, hey, sha-na-na-na, life goes on. I seriously don't know what was being passed around at the meeting when they these people were hired, but I'm thinking I might want some of it because it'll get me through work. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Anyway, I'd heard that there was a lurid scandal among the group. They were featured on a current affair sometime the next spring. Uh, Love All People formally closed up shop in 1997. I've never been able to find any information to confirm a scandal, nor have I been able to actually find a current affair and a current affair episode about them. But the rumors going around the next day were pretty funny, and it had us all saying that, well, hey, sha-na-na-na, life goes on over and over and over again, because that's what teenagers do. They drive a joke into the ground. So... Like I said, I'm not sure if it actually did appear in a current affair. It's just one of those things where people came back to school the next day and were like, hey, that Love All People group was on a current affair. But whatever scandal there was, was well known enough for teachers to be talking about it because they remembered some of the more religious things that were said or at least hinted at. And like I said, that does tend to be the MO for some groups that come to schools. They're actually church groups, but just skirt the line of proselytizing and maybe some people go to see them beyond the school, like at the church they're appearing at that night or the next day, but most people tend to turn to those assemblies into that week's running joke, which I think is par for the course for high school assemblies anyway, especially the ones that were anti-drugs, anti-drinking. I seem to remember AIDS Awareness Days once were taken more seriously, though. Anyway, there are so many shows on television that owe their existence to a current affair, especially TMZ, things like that. And it's interesting to see how the tawdriness of early 1990s syndicated television gets its start here in 1986. As for me, next time I will be... Like I said earlier, I will be jumping over to Marvel's Distinguished Competition. I'll be taking a look at Adventures of Superman number 424. Until then, check out the blog for show notes. I'll post that scan of the issue 55 cover. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com if you'd like to leave me some feedback. You can comment on the post uh, over at the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.